0: Well, good morning, Springbrook. Welcome to the house of the Lord for worship. We are so delighted that you are with us. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Bethany, and I'm the worship director here. And it is truly, it is my honor and my privilege to be with you today. If you're joining with us online, a special welcome to you from wherever the Lord has you today. We want you to feel connected to this community wherever you are today. We want you to be connected online so we you can actually create a profile. We encourage you to do that so that we know you are here. We also have online hosts who are available all throughout the service who would love to answer your questions and would love to engage in prayer with you. We encourage you to communicate through the chat throughout the service, ask your questions, participate throughout the service so you can feel connected to this community throughout our time together this morning. And well, I would love to invite you now to stand as you're able in body or in spirit for our call to worship, which comes from Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Eugene Peterson, in the message paraphrase of this verse, paraphrases it this way. He says, on your feet now applaud God bring a gift of laughter sing yourselves into his presence have you ever thought about your laughter as something you can bring as an offering before God as your own delight as something that can be an offering of worship before God this morning let's come together let's bring our delight and our joy and our song as an offering of worship before our great God who is so so worthy to receive it. Let's lift our voices together this morning. Romans 2 verse 4 tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. We're gonna sing a song today that gives us the opportunity to confess our sin. There's something really powerful about being able to come together in one voice and community to confess our sin. But even in the midst of this song, even in the confession of our sin and admittance of our guilt, We don't come in a spirit of shame or a spirit of condemnation or a spirit of carrying the weight of that guilt. We actually come already knowing the end of the story, right? We know what Christ accomplished on the cross. We know that we have a promise of mercy that's already been won, of forgiveness that's already been granted. And so while we live in the already and the not yet of Christ's kingdom, We come and we confess our sin. We come and we confess that we still struggle, that we're still broken. And yet we come in the promise of his mercy that is already ours. So let's come, let's step forward in fullness and honesty of where we are, that we are broken, that we have sinned, that we need his mercy. But let's come also in the comfort of his spirit in full assurance that his forgiveness is ours in Christ. Let's sing this together. our prayer we know that in Christ that mercy is already ours and yet every day we live in this in between this already and not yet the victory is already yours when Christ was on the cross he said it is finished and the work was done and we know and claim that to be true And at the same time, every day we battle against our own flesh. We battle against our own sin. We battle against our own desire to make ourselves king. To define good and evil on our own terms. To rebel against you. To turn away from what you have said is good and perfect and right. God, you've invited us into what is best and most beautiful And yet we wrestle every single day. And so we pray again and again, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And we thank you for the promise that in Jesus, that mercy is ours. We thank you that by your spirit, we can actually tangibly sense that mercy wrapping us up even in this moment. Your mercy and your compassion is ours. Father, I pray for each person in this room or those who are worshiping from far away today. Maybe for those who are having a hard time believing that your mercy extends to them too. That your mercy can cover that particular sin that they're not quite sure you can forgive or that they can't forgive themselves for. Will you stir in their hearts a belief that your love really is enough? That what Christ accomplished on the cross and the empty grave is enough? God, you welcome us in with open arms. You are that loving Father on the road, waiting for your prodigal children to return home to you. We cannot go too far you're waiting for us and you are welcoming us back in will you, will you stir that in each of our hearts that we are yours, that we are chosen that we are beloved that your grace and your mercy is for us Father we love you this time is for you and you are doing work in us and through us you are transforming our hearts and lives even in this exact moment you are doing work and we need you Holy Spirit, we need you to open our eyes so that we can see you. Open our ears to hear. Open our hearts. Soften us so that we might be receptive to you. Receptive to what you have for us. Receptive to your better way. To your greater righteousness that you're inviting us to today. Father, may your name be made so great in this place. All of this is for you and for your glory. It's in the matchless name of our King Jesus who is seated on the throne by the power of your spirit in us that we have the privilege to pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. Welcome to Springbrook Church. We are so glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, My name is Richard. I'm the lead pastor. And if you are a guest with us this morning, we want to extend a special welcome to you. Uh, You should have on your seat a uh, connection card. We want to encourage you to uh, take that out uh, for a moment. Anytime during the service, you can fill that out. There's a place for you to drop that in the box on the way out this morning, but we are so glad that you are with us. If we can pray for you or if there's any questions you have about our ministry, be sure to fill that out. Also, if you're watching online, uh, welcome. We're so grateful that you're watching with us online this morning. Uh, You've got up in the upper right-hand corner a little box you can click that says online connection card. I would love the opportunity to know that you were with us this morning, uh, so you can take a moment to uh, to fill that out. Uh, just let us know that you were uh, here with us. Um, I, it was uh, We had three birthdays last week in our house, and so uh, we celebrated Carolyn's birthday yesterday. We were in the gym, and I was playing uh, basketball, a friendly game of basketball, <laughs> with my three son-in-laws, and uh, man, I took a nosedive. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. Yes, basketball is a young man's game, and so these guys are all in their 20s, and I I, I held my own, though, but I'm, I'm supporting my my weak knee here. But also, speaking of birthdays, uh, today's Pastor Joseph's birthday, from what I understand, and so if you see Pastor Joseph after the service, I'd be sure to wish him a happy birthday as well. I just want to let you know that if you want to experience more of the power and presence of Christ in your life, uh, we just finished up an encounter series. Uh, I want to encourage you, though, if you do not know your spiritual gift, uh, we have two or three spots left open. We have a a three-week spiritual gifts workshop that we're going to be hosting beginning next Wednesday. Uh, You can sign up for that. That's a great opportunity for you to get connected and experience growth and have an impact building up our body of Christ, and it will help you. The blessing is yours as you experience more of what God has for you, as you unpack the power of those spiritual gifts. And so if you want to know more about that workshop, you can go to our website, springbrook.org gifts. It's also on our app. You can click that link as well. But I want to encourage you to jump in uh, if you have questions about that. I also wanted to let you know, two weeks ago, uh, Sunday on the 30th, we had our 25th uh, annual meeting and celebration. And so we affirmed uh, two new elders. And then we also approved our budget for 2022. That was a huge praise. And so, yeah, it was really something that was uh, exciting. We heard uh, stories of God's faithfulness. Uh, Stories of life change. And I am so encouraged as we move into this new year about what God's doing in and through our ministry. And so I just want to thank you for your faithfulness, uh, for your financial support, for the way that you use your gifts to build up this body of Christ, to help us to be effective at reaching our community for Christ and making disciples. That's what we're about. That's why we exist. And uh, we're so grateful for the opportunity that uh, we have to be a part of what God's doing in and through us uh, together. I also wanted to let you know that if you have not yet downloaded our new app, we sent uh, an email out last week. Um, We have an all-new app for Springbrook. And so you can text uh, Springbrook app to seven. 7-7-9-7-7. If you haven't downloaded that yet already, I would encourage you to do that. Um, it's a great way for you to stay connected. It's got our calendar on there, events are on there, it's a complete new redesign, and so I want to encourage you to to uh, to update your app. I know for the Apple, it works relatively easily, there's an update button you can click. I think if you're using an Android, uh, sometimes uh, you can click update, sometimes you might have to do an uninstall, an and install, and so it should be seamless, but based on people's security settings and those kind of things, everybody's phones are a little bit different. Um, it might you have to navigate that a little bit differently. But I want to encourage you to download your app if you haven't. In fact, today, after this service, if you're in person here, um, I'll be available in the lobby. Just bring your phone or your device up to me and I'll help you update it. I know sometimes that can be a little bit tricky, but uh, it's a great way for you to stay connected. It's got a lot of great information on there, so please uh, uh, update your app today. And then lastly, I just want to let you know, I do watch the news and I, do, uh, I am up to date with what's happening in our culture. Um, it's important for us as a ministry to be relevant, to be intentional about connecting with our our, our community and so we uh, spend a lot of time thinking about how to do that and so I am aware uh, that our governor has uh, announced the, the lifting of the mask mandate so that's gonna be uh, something that's coming at us and I know that their schools right now are trying to navigate through um, what to do with masks and I just want to take this opportunity to thank all of those that serve in our education system if you're a teacher administrator if you're a first responder in our community uh, you are on the front lines of what's happening in our community or if you are a healthcare worker, our, all of those. <laughs> it has been a difficult two years for our ministry, um, but God has been faithful and uh, will continue to be faithful. Um, I'm encouraged by the fact that what's happening out there in that world, we can expect things to go wrong out there. In this world, we're gonna have trials, we have tribulations, we know what to expect out in that world. But in here, there's something different about who God's called us to be together who we are together in Christ, we're called to be different. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we are be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we think about who we are in Christ. And so I just want to let you know as a church, you have done a fantastic job these last two years navigating a very difficult season. And we're going to get ready to go into some more changes as well. I would encourage you to be praying for our elder board and our staff. Our elders are going to be meeting next Tuesday, and you know we're going to adjust to what's happening. But we just want to be intentional. I know there's, there's a lot of opinions, and there's a lot of emotions on both sides of this, uh, but as a church, um, you have done a fantastic job navigating that. So please continue to pray for our ministry as we navigate the next week, next two weeks, and I'll uh, be praying for uh, those that are serving in our committee. I want to thank you for being with us this morning. Pastor Matt's going to come out now. He's going to continue our series, Sermon on the Mount, and I'm looking forward to our message this morning, Matt. <laughs> good.
2: Hi, everybody. I didn't realize it was on when I said good. Um, hi, everybody. Um, I'm Matt, I'm one of the pastors here. I am very excited for this morning, but I need to say off the top end, um, or top end, front end, or top end, we'll go either. Um, Stay with me a while, those at home, stay with me a while, because we're going to be looking at something that was spoken to people 2,000 years ago, and we're going to try and apply it to our modern setting, and if we read it in English... We are going to fail miserably. I, I was asked by a couple different people this week. One person said, how on earth are you going to preach on that um, in one week? And I was like, that's a good question. And we're just going to go long because the Super Bowl starts at five. Um, but, but also, oh, and by the way, obligatory slide about the Super Bowl. I didn't forget. Um, but also, and this is so important. The Bible is a document An ancient document that was written for us in the broad sense, but there was a specific audience. And when we come to a book like Matthew, we need to recognize that Matthew was a Jew writing to a Jewish audience trying to prove that Jesus was what the Old Testament pointed to in a very Jewish way. And if we do not understand that, we're going to read points in this and go, "Huh." That makes me feel bad. I'm going to skip it. Or we're going to read parts and say, I don't know what to do with that. I don't like that. So I'm giving you a big heads up as we start here to stay with me because we're going to read the passage in a second. And then after we read it, we're going to start to break it down. And as we break it down, I hope you will see this doesn't mean what we think it means. And then after we kind of reconstruct it, you're going to be like, I think this is worse. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so good. Father, from the start, you who know everything, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect community, you knew at creation, you knew before creation of our sin. As we sang, Lord, have mercy, we cry out to you in your perfect holiness and say we can never measure up. As we sang today, I had a moment in my head, a juxtaposition of thinking about how I sing, Lord, have mercy, because I think of your Son on the cross for my sins. And then I realized as I was singing that if I saw you and your perfection on the other side of the cross, Lord, have mercy, I am not worthy to be in your presence. But praise the Lord that the righteousness you demand, the perfection you demand, has been paid by the blood of your Son. And Father, let us not use that as an excuse to fall away, but let us use that as a standard to try and measure up to, empowered by your Spirit. I pray for those here that don't know you, that today they would hear this message, this hard message, and they would say, I want what Jesus is offering, no matter how difficult it may seem. I pray for those here who have experienced what we're going to talk about and are experiencing it, that, that Lord, that you would just remind them of your goodness. You were, would remind them that when Jesus said these words on a mountaintop almost 2,000 years ago, the crowd in front of him was sitting with God with us, Emmanuel. They were sitting in the presence of your son who knew, as he said, to be perfect as you are perfect, that no one there could measure up. And he said, I'm going to die in their place that they might be able to be citizens of my kingdom. We pray these would be your words and not mine. We pray for all of us that at the end of the day, we would see what needs to be done in our lives more clearly to follow you well. And we praise you that following you and acting righteous is not something we do to earn your love, but it's something we do from the outpouring of what you have done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount today. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open to Matthew five twenty-seven. It's going to be up here as well. Um, so I'm going to start reading. I didn't give you enough time to open to it, but hopefully you all got there. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. All of this in one week. This is, okay. We need to talk about this, everybody. I just read a lot of really hard things, and so now we're going to lighten the mood by talking about my cheese dip recipe. And some of you are going to wonder, is this a sermon illustration, or is this a reminder to our junior high and senior high students that they can eat this today starting at 5 p.m., bring a friend. Maybe it's both. When we think about the Sermon on the Mount, we need to think about an excellent cheese dip recipe, okay? An excellent cheese dip recipe requires Velveeta, ground meat, too much ground meat, but I'm going to put some of that in a bag and freeze it, um, some, some chili, some chili powder, some cayenne pepper, Rotel, and mild Rotel because our students are wusses, um, and then tortilla chips, and then some type of cooking vessel, um, some people are going to say, well, you got to drain the fat, but you don't drain the fat. You're having processed cheese. You just mix it all together. Um, but the point here is that the Sermon on the Mount is like an excellent cheese dip requiring a number of ingredients. The wise person follows the recipe, cooking down the beef, adding in the spices, and Rotel, cubing the processed cheese, adding the cheese in, and mixing the ingredients together until they melt into this delicious thing that you only eat once a year, and you regret every time you eat it, but it is so good. The fool eats a can of Rotel and calls it a day. When we open to the passage we are in, this is what happens across the board... People open their Bible, and if you've got an ESV Bible, which we preach out of the ESV, it's not the best translation, but we have chosen it as a church. We think it's a reliable and good translation. It's not others are worse or others are better. It's the one we've chosen. I don't have time to go into that. We've got a lot of cheese dip to talk about. But the, the, the idea here is when you open your Bible, you're, you're going to see all of these headings, and you're going to see verse numbers, and you're going to see chapter numbers, and you're going to see all of these things in most translations of the Bible that you will have. And all of those those headings, those numbers, those verses, not a part of the original text. When Matthew wrote, Matthew didn't write 27. You have heard that it was said. He did not write like that. In their day, it was an auditory document it was something that they wrote down but then most people would not have their own copy they would hear it spoken and they were in a culture an oral culture where they would memorize what they had heard to the best of their ability and people part of the job of the early church was someone would have the document and they might take it and read it but then other people would memorize it so the church could keep hearing it in case they didn't have copies and it was a culture where when Matthew wrote this when Jesus spoke this they weren't thinking all right Whenever someone's thinking about adultery or divorce or oaths, they're just going to open up to this little point, because that would be like eating a can of Rotel when you're supposed to be doing cheese dip. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most beautifully done sermons in the. It's got to be the most beautifully done. I. But but the the Sermon on the Mount is a tight perfectly put together thing. Jesus, it's the perfect sermon. Everything in it builds to big ideas that if you're an ancient Jew in around 30 AD, you would see. But we don't see any of it because we live in a world where we speak American, not even English. We don't even put use in the word Color. So today as we read through Matthew 25, uh, and, and we're not just reading, uh, this is next week too and last week with Tim, as we read Matthew 5:21 through 48, we are being challenged with a very specific question that begins in Matthew 9, 5, 19 and 20. This is what Tim talked about last week. It's the big idea behind what Rich was talking about the first week in the Beatitudes. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Those who take the things in the Sermon on the Mount and the things that God has spoken in the law and try and lessen them will be least in the kingdom of heaven if they're in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is sitting on a mountain surrounded by crowds of people. There would have been people of all backgrounds there, There but they were all Jews for the most part. I I would assume they were all Jewish people um, because it would be weird if you were a non-Jew in this environment. People would be like, what are you doing here? But the, the, the point of this is when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's saying, imagine the most perfect people of your cultural understanding of what righteousness looks like. They don't measure up. If we go to the end of this unit, Matthew 5, 48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the the kind of capstone of what we're talking about this week, next week, and last week. We're called to be perfect. And right now I don't have time to talk about it except to say it means what it says it means, and we need to treat it like we're called to be perfect. And then we need to recognize that because of Jesus' blood, we can actually be perfect, but then we need to recognize that we don't live up to what we've been made in the righteousness of Jesus. But we need to recognize that we're not called to just flounder about and say, well, Jesus died for my sins, I'm good. We're called to live to a standard of righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. And when we read Matthew 5 and read these, you have heard it said. We are reading places where the Pharisees, the righteous people of their day, have said, this is what you need to do. Don't murder. Don't lust. Don't take oaths that you shouldn't. Don't, don't swear falsely. Don't, don't retaliate. Don't, or you can retaliate they were saying you could retaliate and finally love your enemies as yourself Jesus is saying a broader bigger thing and saying that what they are preaching and what they are saying is incomplete Compared to the standard that jesus has for them And so the question we have to ask over and over Is how can I have a greater righteousness that will allow me into the kingdom of heaven? And the the smarty pants church answer is the blood of jesus and you're right but then the question is, why did Jesus spend all this time teaching? Why did Matthew, after Jesus had died, rose again, and ascended into heaven some 20 to 30 years after that, think, we need this teaching? And it's because we're called to do something as disciples who make disciples, who baptize and follow Jesus in obedience. Now, I have to talk about one more thing, and I've already kind of talked about it, so you've got... You've got if, if you've got a modern ESV with headings, it's going to say lust, divorce, and oaths. And and if you're somebody who has experienced divorce or remarriage, you've probably come across this passage here. And people have said, well, well there's one reason you can get divorced, and then there's things that you can't do. But then we read this passage, and it's really confusing when it says that... Um, if everyone who divorces makes the woman they divorce commit adultery, and and everyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, and we, we start to wonder, what does this mean? And in order to understand this, the first thing we need to remember is that until 103 years ago, In in the United States, a democracy where all men have the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness until 1919, in like May 1919, when the 19th Amendment was ratified. And I hope I have that number right, because 19 shows up a bunch. But the point is... Women could not vote when it said all men are created equal and all of these things. It did not include women at all, and we can talk later. It's not for today to talk about minorities or anything there, but what we need to remember is that for most of human history, women have kind of been seen as commodities. Sorry, women. The Bible does not agree with that, by the way. And we're going to talk about that. But we need to remember and recognize when we come to these passages, we're not talking about the things you might think we're talking about. The other thing we need to wrestle with is that today, I'm kind of just talking to men for a good part of this sermon. And hopefully, women, you say, that's the standard I'm going to hold my husband, spouse, or maybe potential future or other men to. I don't know. Um, but so this is how it gets broken down. And the, the logic behind this um, we're going super nerdy for a minute, and I, it's important, but it gets broken down this way. Oh, it's orange here, but it's hard to see. So, so Matthew 5.21 says, it was said. 5.27, it was said, it was said, it was said, it was said, it was said. Now you guys are wondering, why do we need to think about this? Well, there's this, this challenge that happens with interpreters, because they have to figure out how they're going to break things up. And so that's why you get lust, and then you get divorce, but, but the reason they do that is because they base their breaking points at it was said. And, and so you get this. But there's a bigger idea. You have heard. 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 This one doesn't look the same. I hope you guys see that. Not just because it's green, but it doesn't start with you have heard. It also, this word also. Ties it to what was said right before it. Okay. I'm making a really long case to say your Bible should be formatted this way, but we don't do it that way because English, Greek, 2,000 years. Um, the, the point, though, is, is that today we're not having a conversation about marriage and divorce at all. We're having a conversation about adultery and lust. Um, when we come to those passages, we need to recognize this on the starting point. And I need to explain this to you um, because it is insane what the Jewish people did and thought was righteous. If, if we were in an ancient Jewish culture, um, I as like a, a pastor, I think I'd be like comparable to a Pharisee, even though I don't like saying that. But let's say I was married to, to Jess and let's say one week we all show up at the synagogue and someone says, Hey, Matt, I, I noticed that you're not with Jess anymore. You're with that other lady. And I go, Yeah. He goes, well, did you give Jess a certificate of divorce? And I go, Yeah. Okay. Well, go preach. Good job. That's, that's how their culture operated. And it got to a point where it wasn't about sexual immorality. We're going to talk about this a bit later, but I'm just spoiling it now. But um, there was this thing called the Any Clause. A-N-Y clause. And, and what would happen is that uh, uh, this one rabbi by the name of Hillel, he read through Deuteronomy 24, one, and it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, the, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and it goes on. But essentially, Hillel read this, in in probably a Greek Old Testament. And in the Greek Old Testament, there's a few extra words in there, and it says anything indecent. And indecent means adultery. But Hillel argued that that word anything there meant if that woman does something that makes you wish you had a different wife, if she burns your toast. This is an illustration an actual rabbi used to explain this. If If she burns your toast and you think I'd be better off with another woman, in order to avoid sexual immorality, divorce her. It became that flippant. That is nothing like modern divorce. Modern divorce, women or men can initiate. There's lawyers, there's all this stuff. In their day, men could be considered righteous and just dump the lady as long as they gave her a certificate. And and this was in the religious context. This was the scribes and Pharisees, the, the righteousness you need to exceed. This was the normal level of righteousness. It's like hard for me to fathom this. Like I like if I came into to church and saw someone like, Why well, I, I just picked up a new wife and I just went, okay. You gave her the certificate. Like, that's the language they use. And I'm sure there was more pain and heartbreak behind it than what we're flippantly talking about right now. But the reality of how the law was being interpreted was that. And when Jesus is talking here, he's not talking about what we think in our modern world of divorce. Because the other thing, in our modern world, if there's a divorce, assets are split, things happen, alimony, blah, blah, blah. Ancient divorce, it was very likely that when the woman was divorced, well, the kids don't have to go because the man is the head and the woman can go figure things out for herself. So I hope this makes sense because we're about to talk about adultery and lust and not talk about divorce. If you want to talk about divorce, We can talk about later. Come find me. It's not a big idea of this passage at all. And my best example of that is if you go into commentaries that talk about this passage, they all start quoting other places in Scripture to talk about divorce and remarriage because this passage doesn't make sense if it's just about that. So we want a righteousness that exceeds. So now we're going to jump back in because we want to ask, how can I have a greater righteousness that will allow me into the kingdom of heaven? Oh, man. So now we come back. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And I put you shall not commit adultery in red here to remind us of what it was. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In the days of Jesus, what would have happened is a Jewish man would have been walking or doing something and he would have seen a woman that he decided, I want her more than my wife. And from the moment he began acting on that, or begin thinking that, Jesus would say, lustful intent has already happened. Now note, and, and he's saying adultery with her in his heart, because what would happen in their day was there was an easy way for that man to get what he wanted. Just file some paperwork. And they didn't really have filing systems, I don't think, but I don't know. Um, it goes on, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So the, the Pharisees of this day, the religious leaders, and the culture of this day would have said it's righteous to get rid of your wife as long as you don't commit adultery. And how do you avoid adultery? You divorce. And, and how do you divorce? You just give them a certificate and say, I don't want you anymore. Um, in fact, this is really interesting. When Joseph goes to get rid of Mary, but then he doesn't, but it says in Joseph, a righteous man, and thought he was going to, you know, divorce Mary quietly. Um, we're, we're told he's righteous because he has mercy on her in what his original plan was because the one time that Jewish men did not do this divorce certificate was when they had proof of adultery and then they would rake that woman over the coals in front of the whole community. And so when Mary was found to be pregnant... Joseph could have done a lot more, but we see he had mercy even before the angel appeared. I think that's really cool. Um, This part is about, to an ancient Jewish person, if there's a woman in your community that you're walking by every day thinking, I'd rather have her and my wife, well, then you figure out a different way to walk. You figure a different way to do things. Stop, and the bigger idea is stop thinking... That divorce is an option. Stop thinking that this any clause divorce is an option because in their day that was the common thing. And Jesus is saying, take away the opportunity to break the covenant between you, your spouse, and God. He goes on to say, and it's again a part of this same thing look, we begin, commits adultery, we end, commits adultery. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this passage, I hope you're seeing, takes on new meaning when the idea of divorce was tied to, I think I want that woman now. I don't want my woman anymore. I think I want to exchange. I think I want to pass on. I think, do you, do you see how this is much different? And then when it talks about makes her commit adultery and commits adultery, it's not saying, well, well, the woman's fault right now. In, in their day, what, and this is, oh, we have, we don't have enough time for this. We never have enough time for going into ancient Jewish culture. But in their day, the Jews thought that they were way more righteous than everyone else. Because if you were a Roman wife, a Roman wife was expected that the only one that the Roman wife had sex with, was the Roman husband. But that Roman husband was expected to go do whatever they wanted. The Roman wife was the one person in the household because you were the lineage. Like, the the Roman husband needed to know that from my wife I got an heir that would continue my line. The Roman wife was essentially a slave in the household if the husband did not regard her well. He could go get otherwise. He could go do whatever he wanted. But that woman was just to produce one heir. And if we go to ancient, when we go to Deuteronomy 24, in the days of Jesus, when we talk about a divorce certificate, in other cultures, if, if a husband decided, I don't want my wife anymore, they didn't give them a certificate of divorce so they could go get remarried. They just made them a house slave and picked a new woman. And so the Bible is very progressive towards women's rights in the time it's in, we just have no framework for that because we read it and go, this is weird. Why are women adulterous because of this? But what Jesus is saying is that if you're going to engage in this practice of lusting and passing off and objectifying women and turning them into commodities that you say, well, I like this one, but now I like that one. Jesus is saying... You're bleeding to an adulterous culture. You're, you're a part of this. You can't pretend like it's okay to just flippantly pass aside one woman for something else that you see and you like. But in their day, the religious leaders, those who had the best righteousness, said this is just fine. I'm going to just skip this because we talked about it already. The fake righteousness that Jesus is calling out is by not committing the outward act of adultery, by not Doing something physical until after the divorce and remarriage, I show myself to be righteous. That's what the rabbis, the the Pharisees, the scribes, that's what the people as a whole would have done and felt justified in. The first century, and when a man began to have adulterous thoughts, they cast aside their wife according to the law to remain righteous and follow their own desires. And they were in their community lifted up. Kingdom living, defend the covenant between you and your wife and God. Cutting off the things that might prevent you from honoring your marriage. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, stop putting these options here. Stop putting these ideas here. You've, you've got a commitment with this person. Honor it. And now this gets awkward. Because, because we, don't, we don't do do I, I don't like go around thinking, all right, I like Jess, but I'm looking for the next one. Right? That'd be really weird. I don't even like saying that. Like, I'm joking, but it's like a... Uh, um, but, but the modern practice now, um, we do it a lot differently, right? A man can look at, imagine, objectify, and have emotional connections with whoever he wants as long as he does not take, physic, take a physically adulterous step with another person. Cell phones? Like, I, like I, I, I look at this and I think, like, yes, there, there are relation, like extramarital affairs... And, and those are, are devastating, but I think one of the sad realities is this is, this is happening in homes. This is happening in marriages. And, and the lie is, uh, and, and this is a lie, I'm, I'm speaking for myself here as a man. The lie, I, I grew up hearing, well, well as a guy, um, you, you can't control your urges, and they're just going to happen, and you're just going to have to deal with them, and you're going to have to learn to deal with them. But, but as a guy, you're just kind of wired this way. Do you? That, that's how I heard this, even in church settings. It was like, well, you gotta, you, you know, it's just gonna happen sometimes, and do your best. And 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 the problem is, and I think this is very uncomfortable, but the problem is, is that we teach young men that they are nothing more than beasts. Those created in the image of God. The way we talk to them invites them to say, "It's out of my control." And we start that young, um, parents and non-parents and everyone here, specifically men, we ha- parents, if I have never called you to say, hey, I've talked to your son about things they might be looking at on the Internet, or hey, we need to have a talk, if I have never talked to you about that, that means your child and I have never talked about it, because we hold a very strong line in our youth group of we're not going to talk to kids about SE double hockey sticks unless the parents are aware of it. We don't think that it is an appropriate topic to bring up with kids in settings where parents are unaware, especially in an age of cell phones and of Snapchat and of different connection measures where parents may not even know what is being said. We put lines up. Parents, if you are the parent of a teenage boy, that means that our youth ministry is not the starting point for conversations about pornography and lust. And, and parents, let's, let's go a step further. Fifth graders. That's the age that a lot of data says by fifth grade they've seen it. Boys and Girls. By the time they're in seventh grade, when we get them in youth ministry, do you, do you know what we're dealing with? We're dealing with patterns of addiction that have already started. And they don't want to talk to us about it in the first place. And we're not the first line. Because any time I talk to young men who are struggling and say, well, I'm just, I'm just going to stop doing it, it takes more than that. It takes accountability. It takes so much more. Parents, please take to heart that your child's purity is your problem, and it's also your responsibility. And I don't say this because I don't want to help. I have so many suggestions of how to help, but I also know that I'm not the starting point for these conversations because when I'm the starting point for these conversations with kids or even young men, I'm the ending point. It takes accountability, it takes structure, it takes conversations about what are we doing because we can't just say, well, I know I shouldn't do it. We need to say why and what patterns are we avoiding. Um, and, and there's so much that you can do, but you have to do it proactively because if you wait to do it until the kid's already been looking at a long time, it's a problem. And men, men. If you're struggling with this, this is why for a long time I have not had a browser on my cell phone because I have struggled with this before. I have had patterns of this. I now have accountability that I go to because I don't want this to be a repeated pattern in my life. I don't want to have thoughts that Jesus calls adultery in my life. And I want to make sure if a pattern starts, I'm talking in accountability. I want to make sure I don't have the opportunities for the things I don't need in the first place. Men, one of the hardest realities of this, and and men, I'm not accusing you of anything, but I'm saying that every person I talk to who has wisdom and working in this, um, far more wisdom than me that's been working in the church a long time, people that I talk to, and I'm not talking about pastors here, I'm talking about like counselors or people who work on larger church levels, they say one of the reasons we're seeing it in teenagers is because in homes, And I'm not trying to shame you, I'm trying to say if there's something there, do not believe the lie that the Pharisees believe that they said, it doesn't really affect me, no one knows about it, or it's righteous, and so I can do what I want. Because what we've decided in our modern world is as long as no one knows about what I do in the privacy of my home, it doesn't matter. We don't think it affects us, it shapes us, we don't think it shapes our marriages, I'm almost out of time because I said five minutes and I'm watching the clock. The one last thing here, and I think this is the most insane thing, and this is weird, but um, I am a 35-year-old, and the targeted ads that I've been getting since I was like 28... Um, I remember when they started, the targeted ads for, like, people in my age range are ads about erectile dysfunction. And I bring this up because the reason that we are seeing it across young, some people have it younger, I know this is, but, but the reason that we're seeing is because pornography is so prevalent that people's brains are so rewired that they need medication to do what they were created to do. It is insane, and we don't even talk about it because we're not sure how to talk about it, we don't know what to talk about, but I'm out of my five minutes. But do not let this be a sin that defines you, and do not think you can be righteous in it, because while I haven't committed adultery, I haven't taken that action, the thoughts in our hearts and in our minds are so damaging. Moving on. And that was the easy part of the sermon. Um, again... Parents, if I can say one last thing. Parents, my door, my phone, my email, it's all open. I would love to talk to you about this. Parents of kids that are not yet in middle school, parents of younger kids, talk to me. Parents of kids that are about to get their first cell phone, talk to me. This is my last thing. What we think of as pornography in older generations, and especially generations older than me, I'm 35, I'm a millennial Sorry, but um, the, as a 35-year-old, what I think of as pornography, people 10 years older than me think of something different. When you start going down, what the kids are referring to is not just images they see. It's way worse. It's way more. Don't let this be something that is just... Don't let this be something where you say, well, they'll come to me when they want to talk about it. Parents, be proactive. Men, if you're struggling with this, be proactive. Again... Um, like the Mennonites and some other groups, if they went and testified in court, they read this and go, all right, I can't swear on a Bible when I give my oath. Um, and, and when we think about this in our modern context, I, I think a sad reality is that we live in a culture that is so devoid of covenant and, and promise and oath and swearing and, and commitment that when we read this, we, we have no idea what to do with it. And so like a lot of books and commentaries say, make sure you're honest. And it's like, gee, thanks. Um, but, but Jesus in his day was talking, remember, exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. We're making cheese dip, okay? Exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, what were the Pharisees and what were the religious people that wanted to look righteous doing in their day? Apparently, some were using the oath system to draw fine distinctions between oaths that had to be carried out and those that did not have to be carried out. So Jesus was naming and attacking practices that subverted the very purpose of the oath tradition. Now, this is a a book called Kingdom Ethics. They're referring here to Matthew 23, but in looking elsewhere, this seems very likely to be what Jesus is talking about. Um, This is just the easiest quote on it, even though it's from Matthew 23. But again, there's a big idea undergirding this conversation between Jesus and those sitting around him as he's saying, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds. People in that day, if they wanted to look righteous, they would say, and I'm going to use a, okay, I think this is funny enough to do. Um, There was a song by Justin Bieber where it was called Holy holy, holy, or something, but it wasn't like the good version of it. It might just be called holy. This is how much I know about it. Um, But when that song came out, I remember hearing people say, he's a Christian now. And the song is about, I feel holy when this girl holds me. Um, So, um, but in the song, he goes, on God. Some of you listen to this, come on. you're all looking at me, but he says on God, which is like swear, swearing or oath. It's like an oath. He's making an oath and he's saying on God, I love you girl. Um, and then I don't think he's with the same girl now. I could be wrong in that. I didn't fact check my Justin Bieber stuff, but the, the, the point here is, Adam's, thank you, Adam. One person out there will admit to Bieber fever, but um, the, the, the point here. The point here is that we we don 't do this the same way i I hear students sometimes, um, and I, re- I remember we had a youth leader one time like bite the heads off some some kids, because they kept saying, on God, and then saying things that were clearly lies, and I was so proud of the youth leader, because it just needed to happen, because I kept hearing, on God, I didn't do it, and it was like, you just hit the guy with the dodgeball in the face, on God, I didn't do it, and it was nonsense, and I don't know where it came from, but it was kind of funny behind the scenes, except it is using the Lord's name in vain, so it wasn't good, but it was weird that that was what they decided to do, just very weird, but the point here is, is that in a lot of ways, this does not make sense to us, because we don't do oaths, and covenants the same way. We do sometimes, like we ask our small group leaders to commit for the year, we ask different volunteers to commit to things, but but outside of the church setting, I think a lot of times we don't. Well, there's one oath that if you are a Christian, you have taken. Um, and we'll get to that in a second, but the, the fake righteousness was, say non-committal oaths to look holy. That's what they did. I swear by the cobblestone below Jerusalem, that I will pay X number of money to the temple if it snows on the third day of May. Like, I'm being ridiculous, but they would make these oaths that then like all the other righteous people go, oh, and I think they golf clapped. Um, I think the Pharisees golf-clapped. But um, I I say that, and and I say this because they would make these grandiose claims that then people would go, now, that guy was righteous. mm -hmm. Um, In the first century practice, that's what they did. Kingdom living. Live in a way above deceit and words meant to puff yourself up. Instead, take the commitments you have made seriously. Communicate honestly and let your actions speak for themselves. You know that moment when you became a believer? If it's anything like mine, sinner's prayer, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know that I can't get to you because of my sin. Um, but I know you died on the cross for my sin. I know you rose again. You're a king. I want to be a part of your kingdom. I give you my life. I pray that you would come into my life. I, you know, there's a bunch of different ways people say it. That is an oath. That's a covenant between you and God. And and let's be honest, a lot of times we we say that and we we know we should do that and we know we should live to a certain standard. And then we go, well, I'm doing a lot of good things. I'm doing a lot of things right. And 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 we we lower and lessen the commitment we have made to Jesus, we, we are called to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. At the end, and we're going to talk about this next week, I keep referencing it, but, but the big idea on this unit is to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. When you gave Jesus your life, when you became a believer, the commitment that you were making was to try and imitate Christ and fail over and over, as you continually get better and grow. It's like muscle memory, like Paul, and he talks about you need spiritual milk first, and then you move on to meat, and you you grow, and, and the sin's that defined me so much when I was 14 and 15 no longer defined me the same way. The fears that prevented me from connecting with God when I was younger no longer have the same impact. And now I get to find out about all the new sins that I was blind to because I was so focused on the other ones because the reality is when we're told to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect, the end result is we will never get there. The end result is when we became believers, we made a commitment we could never live up to. And the good news, that I, I loved how Bethany said it, I loved how Rich said it two weeks ago, and Tim said it last week. The good news is that even as Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount, as, as he's saying, here's what kingdom cheese dip looks like, as he's saying that, he's saying, you're going to mess up the recipe, but I've got the Spirit, and I, I'm in, I, you've got the Spirit, I'm in you, I'm challenging you to keep working at it till you finally make it the right way. And you're not going to do it in this life. But we're called to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. And when Jesus died, his blood covers our sin. He's given us the Holy Spirit that in this life we can move towards that. And hopefully someday we can meet that measure that, that we could never meet on our own. And we won't in this life. But we will die and in heaven we will be perfect like our heavenly Father is perfect. Praise the Lord. The problem is is that we don't think that way. And because we don't think that way, we read these passages and we miss that we are called to a standard. And we're called to keep trying to reach that standard even as we fall over and over. And the beauty of the church is not that the church is a place of a bunch of Pharisees of high righteousness. The beauty of the church is that we're a bunch of fallen people that can talk to each other about, man, I know where you're at. I know the struggle you've had. I've been there too. Here's how God's been at work in my life. And we can do that time and again. We don't have to live in our sin. A lot of people think the gospel is about making sure our sin is satisfied before God. And that's part of it. But it's not just to have our sin satisfied, but to live in a satisfactory way before the God who invites us to eternity with him. How can I have a righteousness that will allow me into the kingdom of heaven? I want to invite you to do a daily pattern. Um, The first thing is we need to replicate our king. Replication of our king is such an important thing. Every day, we need to wake up and think, I'm going to be like Jesus. And then we need to also think, I'm going to try. And then we need to not say try, because when you say try, Yoda said, don't say that. Um, And so do it. And then throughout the day, we're going to think about what true righteousness is. rumination is like deep thinking. We need to deeply think about what we are called to be, the true righteousness. And the way we do that is we learn more about who God is and who we were created to be in, in light of that. And so we need scripture, we need prayer, we need community, small groups, we need church, we need all of these things in our daily pattern, not in our Sunday pattern, in our daily pattern. And finally, we need humble repentance. Um, because the, and the, the, re, the reality is, as I say this, some of you might think, well, Matt's very much like Jesus, um, and you just don't know me. Um, replication of our king is something that we're never going to succeed in, no matter how much we try, but it's something we should always be striving for. I talked to a mentor um, this week, and the coolest thing I have, I have ever heard him say, and I feel bad because he's like, Matt, I say this all the time, and I was like, well, it just clicked, um, but, <laughs> but um, he talked about every day around noon, when he prays for his lunch or whatever, um, he asks himself, what do I need to repent of this morning? And every evening at his meal, he thinks, what do I need to repent of from this afternoon? And then every night before he goes to bed, he asks himself that same question from the day. And, and for some of you, you may say, well, this sounds really negative. But, but there's two sides to this. It's, it's thinking about, well, where, where do I need to take steps towards being like Jesus, and where did I miss it, and then how do I do that better? Because the, the beauty is, is the more we look like Christ, the more we live like we're called to live in Christ— the more we're going to see ourselves living up to what we are called to be. And when we fail, we will have a better understanding of, okay, I fought, fell, but that just tells me that God's grace is so good. I would encourage you, if you have a cell phone, set a reminder. Um, that I, this is a screenshot. I've got one going at 9.30 p.m. every day going forward to think about this. I'm going to set another one as well. I just don't know when because a lot of times I don't eat lunch at normal times. Um, yeah, so... And also, the, I like how this was on here. If I had two of them, it would have looked weird. But, but set, some, set some repeating notifications on your phone right now. Um, the next one. I, um, I have a text chain with a couple guys that I meet with every week. Um, and and we, we fail at this so often. But one of our goals is we text each other each day and say, my armor is on, like the armor of God. And we text each other, and, and you'll notice that um, they are way more invested than me most of the time, because they say my armor is on, my armor is on, and a lot of times I just say on. Um, but they know what I mean. Um, but but I, I say that um, because every day we try and text each other and encourage each other, and when I say on, what I'm saying is, I spent time in the Word, I spent time praying about my day, and guys, I spent time praying for you. That's what we're saying to each other. And then we meet up once a week, and when we meet up, sometimes our meeting is, hey, you didn't text for four days. And then they ask me, and I go, um, stop. But, um, and then we actually talk about it, and hey, did you have a good week, bad week? What's going on? Because we don't just leave it as, oh, I opened my Bible. We say, well, well did you live righteously this week? We, we use language where, where we try and challenge each other not to stay in the same place. And so that's a simple start, especially for, for people struggling with lust. You need accountability that's deeper than just, I'm going to quit doing it. Um, That never works. It's an addiction. We're called to live in a daily pattern of replication of our king, rumination on true righteousness and humble repentance, and then we repeat it again and again and again. And on this side of glory, we repeat it knowing we're never going to match it in this life, and we're in this paradox of, my sin is covered And I have the grace of God on me, and someday I will be fully in God's glory. But I'm in the paradox of even as I'm supposed to be that because of Jesus' death, his blood, his Holy Spirit, I'm trying to live up to what I have been created to be and what his blood has made me into. And someday we'll be on the other side of this, and we'll be able to say each day that we're actually doing these things when we're in the kingdom where heaven and earth are together for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son's blood that covers us for your spirit, that empowers us for the resurrection, that tells us that the work he did is true. And Father, we recognize we cannot live up to what we have just talked about, but Father, please let us not be a people who give up trying. Let us not be a people who say, well, I'm righteous enough. Let us not be a people who compare ourselves to others to set our measure of good, but let us be people who recognize how far short we fall of your goodness. I pray for any here who do not know you as their king, as their lord, as their savior. I pray that today, if they're online, they'd say something to one of the hosts. If they're here, that after the service, they would come find me. I would love to talk to them. I I pray for anyone that does not know you, that they would come to know you, that they would make you their Lord and their King. And Father, I pray for those here that are suffering with deep sin, that are feeling it, that are feeling convicted, that are feeling, I need to do something about it. Father, I pray that they would not let the busyness of the week prevent them from taking the actions they need to take. I I pray that the men of our church, myself included, I pray that we would be men that live to honor you, that we would be men that live to hold up a right value of the women at our church and the white value of women in our culture. I pray that we would model for a world that says men are beasts and model for a world that says sex is no big deal and model for a world that says um, you can do what you want, but you also have to get consent, but you also have to do I pray we would model for a world of contradiction, a greater righteousness that matches your perfection. And I pray that when we fall short of that, that we would turn, we would repent, and we would keep moving towards you. Father, we thank you that you call us to be perfect. You've given us your spirit. You've given us the blood of your son, that we can someday be perfect. And I pray that even now, We would live in that paradox, that already but not yet, and we would move towards you more and more. We thank you that we are fighting a battle of obedience because the victory is already won, and I pray we would believe that and we would live out that truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. We're going to sing one final song as a song of response to this word we received, and I want to encourage you, you're welcome, to stand as we sing and respond. But if you would like to remain seated, if you'd like to take a spirit of reflection, confession during this time, or you'd like to grab a friend or a pastor and spend some time in prayer, you're also welcome to respond in that way as we reflect on the word that we have received this morning. Let's respond with this final song of worship together this morning. Thank you so much for spending this time in worship with us this morning. If you have questions, if you are in need of prayer, please find me or one of the pastors, any of the staff after this service. And we would love to spend time encouraging you and in prayer with you after this service. Go now in a spirit of faith and love and hope. Have a blessed, blessed week in the Lord, and we will see you.